So that video is a picture of procrastination. What is procrastination? Well, I define it, but we can do that later. Just kidding. That is the definition of procrastination. When you could do something right now, but you push it off until later. Uh, it's the driving force between last-minute projects, last-minute papers. I was at William & Mary yesterday for the first time in years. Uh, Steph had some treatments up there. I was there with Raj just walking the campus, and I walked past multiple computer labs where I remember there would be students with their Mountain Dew or back then Surge, right? Red Bull was just new at that point. Whatever energy you could find, and you would lock yourself in that room in front of a computer and knock out that project that you had been waiting to do and is now doing hours at midnight or that next day. And I know that because I was that person multiple times in the computer labs, locked in there, getting work done. And you go to any other college, you'll see the same thing. Go to companies and workplaces where people are given projects. We just have this inclination for procrastination. There's a human tendency to overvalue or undervalue a reward, a test, an event based on how close it is in time. There's something psychologists call temporal discounting where we, we have what, what is called a present bias, where the closer something is, especially on the calendar, the more it has your attention, but the further away it is, the more you discount its importance. And in our culture, this is, this is a big trap because the, the, the immediate pleasure, the immediate dopamine fix of getting on Facebook and counting your likes or getting on Instagram and looking at pictures or getting on Twitter, that is so much more at the tip of our finger than that test or that event we have to plan for that's a month away on our calendar. We can get so much more pleasure out of just doing something that applies to right now. But as the temporal proximity of that test or set event gets closer and closer to, say, tomorrow, then you cram. So why do I share this in church? Because believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, as we go about our day-to-day, our Monday through Friday, our 9 to 5, as we just go about life, so often eternity seems like it's an eternity away. Heaven feels like it's, it's almost another life. We're so consumed in, in what we have going on right now. And I say that because as humans, we're all prone to temporal discounting. What's far away is of lesser importance and what's closer gets our attention. And that's why our quiet time so often gets shouted down by our to-do list. Or, or time spent with God gets stiff-armed by the things that we have to tackle today or else we don't get to do it. We're, we're guilty of this because we're human. Just because we're human, we're prone to procrastinate with what seems distant. But we're coming out of this series last week on Leviticus where we were talking about God doesn't want us to have long-distance relationships with him. Where Leviticus is about how he wanted to bridge this gap so that we could have a relationship with this infinite, eternal God in heaven right now with us. But so often eternity feels like it's a lifetime away, it's an eternity away. But God wants us to have the perspective that we have on one of these banners, right? This one, 
Psalm 27, 13, that I would have given up hope if I didn't think that I'd see the goodness of God, this taste of heaven here in the land of the living. That I don't have to wait till the end of days that seem so far away to experience God and what God wants for me. That God isn't far off, but neither is heaven. You know, I kind of threw out some homework at the end of service last week as we were dipping at the end of this series on Leviticus. And and it was kind of like the bell rings and your teacher starts talking twice as fast trying to get the homework in before you can leave the classroom. But a great follow-up to reading the book of Leviticus, if you want to look at how Jesus fulfills all these things we see in the, the Old Testament and Leviticus, is to read the book of Hebrews. So this week I spent a lot of time myself in the book of Hebrews, and, and spending time in that book is what sparked this sermon. Uh, one of my favorite verses in he, is in Hebrews because it packs so much powerful truth and potent theology into just a few words. And that verse is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Where the author says, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Another translation says, he has made holy those who are being made perfect. So we see that this first thought and this second thought are very, very similar. By one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And it highlights something so important about God's grace that, yes, it covers us. By one offering, we've been perfected forever, as this verse says, but it also calls us. Grace calls us forward into sanctification, this idea of being sanctified. And maybe you're like, what's sanctification, right? That sounds like a big churchy word. But there's two words that we need to come to uh, grasp because it's important to our walk with God. Justification and sanctification. Justification is this idea that I'm in right standing with God by grace, by faith alone in Jesus Christ and the work of the cross, this idea that I've been perfected forever. I have right standing with God because as we were saying in worship, when God sees you, he doesn't see your failings. He doesn't see the mess that you've been. He sees the blood of Jesus Christ. He sees his son, right? Again, Jesus took the curse so that we could have the blessing. That's justification. But there's also sanctification. Sanctification is this idea that we're called to look more like Jesus daily. And it's important to make note of both and and realize what they mean for us as believers. Because justification isn't an excuse to sit on our hands and passively wait for Jesus to return. There's work to be done through us as we walk out our sanctification. But you can't make progress in sanctification if you don't have an assurance in your justification. You'll you'll putter out eventually. Because, again, sanctification is this fruit of, of walking and looking more and more like Jesus Christ daily in love, in mercy, in justice, in reconciliation. But we don't earn God's love or justify ourselves in doing so. We're only justified by Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. That's the root. The sanctification is the fruit. If you try to make the fruit the root, the fruit will go bad. But the root that brings life and salvation is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. No more, no less. The way we live should be rooted in deep assurance Deep confidence that comes from being in right standing with God through Jesus. We're saved by grace through faith, through the work of Christ. And praise God that in his grace, when we were lost, right, talked about how God sees us where we're at. He loves us where we're at. He accepts us where we're at. He died for us where we were at, and yet he doesn't leave us where we're at. We've said it again and again. It's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. God's grace covers us, but then it calls us. Yes, God's grace would minister. Jesus would minister to these people. And then at the end of their conversation and interaction, he'd say things like, go and sin no more. In Matthew 5.48, he says something that's perhaps even more challenging where he says, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
I love that the message version is even more blunt. In the message version, it says, in a word, what I'm saying is, grow up. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, it echoes this call to grow up. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, it says, therefore, let us get past the elementary stage in the teachings about Christ, advancing onto maturity and perfection and spiritual completeness. It's the amplified version. This is what it looks like to grow up in Christ. This is sanctification. This is progress spiritually as we follow Jesus. But the question I'd ask, and it's an important one, is what do you do when God, when the Holy Spirit, he lays a finger on an area in your life where you need to grow beyond or you need to let go of or you need to deal with? What's your response? It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, another let us, where it says, let us throw off everything that hinders And the sin that easily entangles. So what do we do when God lays a finger on something and says, hey, this needs to come off? Maybe it's a habit, a relationship. Maybe it's a perspective. Maybe it's an obsession. Because a lot of times I think in the church we'll feel conviction, right? We'll take note. Might even cry a few tears at the altar. Might pray with somebody, uh, invite somebody into accountability, confess it to them. But then so often we procrastinate. A lot of Christians would be diagnosed with what I might call a conviction addiction, where we like conviction. There's hope in conviction. Condemnation tears us down, but conviction says that we can be forgiven. It challenges us to do better. There's hope in conviction. But we often walk out of a service where we've been convicted, thinking that we now walk in faith, when really we we stood in hope for a moment, but God is calling us to now walk in faith. He's calling us to change. There's a big difference between conviction and change. So often we procrastinate. We don't change. A couple months later, we feel the same conviction and then rinse and repeat. Again, conviction and change are two very different things. And if we end up procrastinating in this way, we never end up progressing in our walk. There are people that have been following Jesus for 20 years, but they don't have a 20-year-old faith. They have a one-year-old faith that they've lived 20 years over again, year after year, because they're never maturing or progressing in their faith. Because when God calls them to to take this step, take this off, remove this from your life, start this habit, we procrastinate. You know, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 15, I want to read it tonight, but it's bookended uh, by this verse. It's quoting from Isaiah. But it says in Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7, it says, this is why the Holy Spirit says, don't harden your, excuse me, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, as Israel did when they rebelled, When they tested me in the wilderness, there your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them, and I said, their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. The author of Hebrews goes on to say, be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today. So that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember what it says. Today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. So this passage in Hebrews, as a lot of Hebrews does, it's looking back to the Old Testament. And it's looking back to the Israelites. Talking about the hardening of their hearts and their rebellion in the desert going all the way back to Exodus. So what's Exodus? It's when God delivers his people from hundreds of years of slavery to Egypt. 
And their deliverance wasn't through some violent uprising, wasn't through some grassroots effort. It was by the very hand of God. Ten plagues that struck Egypt to show God's power and force Pharaoh to release his people from, again, hundreds of years of slavery. So they were saved from Egypt. And they were called to the promised land. And that's a reality for us. That's a reality for God's people that we're called to a journey. We have to endure. The posture of somebody saved by grace isn't sitting back on our hands because we've got it good now. It's running after what God has for us. And we're expected to respond to God's call and his voice and his prompting and not harden our hearts when he tells us to move this way or that way or change directions or take this off because it's hindering us in our journey. But further back in Exodus, if we just turn the pages to the left even further, there's a verse about procrastination that's always blown my mind. I, don't, I just know as long as I've been reading the Bible, it's always one of those verses where I do a double take. I'm like, wait, pause. What, did, what just happened? Because, again, there's ten plagues that struck Egypt to show God's power and bring Pharaoh to this reckoning. And the first plague was where the Nile was turned to blood. That's wild. That's crazy. But Pharaoh's heart stayed hard. No cigar in terms of his willingness to release the Israelites from, from bondage and slavery. And the second plague is where I want to turn, however. And if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there's ones under your pews. We're going to be in Exodus. It's the second book. It's easy to get to. It's right after Genesis. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 8. Because the second plague were these. Frogs. Harmless, right? Like, this is one of Raj's toys. He's not scared of this. <laughs> You're not really scared of frogs, right? They're not really terrifying. You think of a frog, you probably think of Kermit the Frog, right? The lovable little Muppet. Maybe you think of Frogger, right? A game where you're not the harmful one. You're trying not to get harmed by traffic as you try to cross the street. Maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about. But Frogger was a game. That's what we think of probably when we think of frogs. Hardly something that would be used as a weapon, uh, but... God says in the King James Version, I will smite your borders, talking to Pharaoh, with frogs. Smite means to strike with your hand or a weapon. This is the hand of God using frogs, this most unlikely source, as a weapon. And it seems like an incredibly odd choice until you look at Egyptian culture. Because if you look at Egyptian culture, they worship a goddess, a fertility goddess, that had the head of a frog. It's almost like God was saying, oh, you want a fertility god. These, these frogs are plenty fertile. Matter of fact, they've multiplied to the fact where they're everywhere. Joke's on you, right? Here's the application for us, though. See, at some point, the idols in our lives, those things we turn to more than God, or those things we turn to when we feel like we're exhausted or need help or just need relief, sometimes they're behind the scenes. They seem under control. But eventually those idols will become out of control, hop the banks, and cripple us. The backdoor binge that becomes a full-blown addiction. The occasional glance that becomes a crippling habit. The desire to please people that eventually becomes a paralyzing fear of disappointing them. The toxic relationship that becomes impossible to quit. Whatever it is, God wants us to be set free from these frogs, <laughs> these things that we cling to, these idols that aren't helping us. And this is where in this story it gets a little nutty. Because imagine your house is filled with hundreds of thousands of frogs. Like you get in bed and, and you're, you put your head to the pillow, there's a frog there. You get out of bed in the morning and before your foot hits the floor, it meets a frog and it squishes it, right? Like there's worse things than stepping on my son's toys. I don't want to roll out of bed and step on a, a frog. That's gross, right? I don't want frogs in my coffee. I don't want frogs in my water. You think about it, there are frogs in the water sources. There's frogs everywhere. Not only frogs, but the things 
that happen after they've eaten, right? This is a sanitary issue. This is a health issue. This is a big issue. This isn't just some annoyance with some cute little frogs. No, this was a big deal. So imagine this is your situation. You've got the exterminator on the phone. So yeah, I can get rid of these things like that. When do you want me to come through? When do you want me to do it? What would your answer be? ASAP, pronto, now, <laughs> right? Look at what Pharaoh says, right? Moses comes to Pharaoh in verse 8. It says, then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and begged, plead with the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people. I will let your people go so that they can offer sacrifices to the Lord. You set the time, Moses replied. It's almost like a sarcastic level of kindness. He's like, tell me when you want me to pray for you, your officials and your people, then you and your houses will be rid of the frogs. It will remain only in the Nile River. This is Pharaoh said, do it tomorrow. Do it tomorrow. Again, it's like, excuse me. What kind of buffoon says, you know what, I'll take 24 more hours of this torture before you go ahead and get rid of it. Right? Pharaoh's heart. As we read in this account, if you begin with even before the plague started and God is speaking to Moses about what he was going to do, Pharaoh's heart was hard, right? He was standing in staunch or opposition to God and God's will. So we might not share those shoes, right? We might not be standing in those shoes, but so often in life we share his answer. Tomorrow, I'll take another night with the frogs. Right? I'm good with another night with the frogs. Because think about it. How often do we do the same when we need to make a drastic change in our lives, when something is making a mess of your life, but you're so afraid of letting go of it, or, or maybe you're so stinking addicted that you feel the need, I'm just going to put it off till tomorrow. Maybe it's the hard conversation you've been avoiding, the diet you've been putting off, the struggles you've been putting up with, the habits we make excuses for, the changes we procrastinate on. Like, I know I should forgive that person, but eh. I know I should confess this, but I know I shouldn't spend this right now. I should probably rebudget, but I know I should be tithing right now, but I know I should be exercising and taking care of myself, but I'll get to all that tomorrow. Tomorrow's another day. The, the song from Annie becomes a procrastinator's chorus. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you tomorrow. You're only a day away. I can take care of these things tomorrow. We procrastinate. Not just with the things we shouldn't be doing, but think about it. We do it with the things we should be doing. We tell ourselves, yeah, I'll go closer to God someday when my kids are no longer small and demanding or when the pressures of work aren't there or when we become more disciplined or we'll, we'll show up for more when the, the sports are over or when our motivation level is higher or we just somehow magically grow into spiritual maturity. Again, sometimes this procrastination keeps us from ever progressing. Again, you might have a 20-year relationship with God, but it's a, it's a one-year relationship you just lived over 20 times because you keep procrastinating on the things he's prompting you to do. John Ortberg, he's a great author. He says, if right now is the most important moment of your life, then the word tomorrow is the most dangerous word in the English language. Why? Why do we so often push it off till tomorrow and procrastinate? We have our reasons. Right? Pharaoh had his reasons. Maybe your reason is just wrong priorities. Maybe it's complacency. Maybe it's plain laziness, fear, forgetfulness. But, again, Pharaoh had his reasons. He was surprisingly passive in that moment. He's like, yeah, give me 24 hours more with the frogs. Because maybe he's thinking, maybe I just have to wait this out. Maybe if I just wait 24 more hours, I don't have to give in to Moses' demands, and they'll just go away on their own. There's a lyric by an artist named Shad. It's short for Shadrach. He's got a cool name. It's always been in my head. He says, the devil's favorite line is it will only take a minute. Wait it out. 
Be passive. You don't need to make that drastic change. It'll be better tomorrow, right? Passivity. Then there's also the cost. Pharaoh was about to lose all his slave labor. That's a high cost. He was trying to build this empire, build these monuments. You might lose that relationship. The cost might be you lose that freedom (laughs) that is actually robbing you of freedom. Talking to men and young men as a youth pastor and now a pastor so often about struggling with pornography and what they look at. Look, if if you have a smartphone and it it causes you to struggle, get a flip phone. (laughs) If If your computer causes you to struggle and it's in your bedroom, put it in a public place, right? There are drastic steps God calls us to take, but so often we don't like the cost. We don't like the cost. Jesus said, hey, when your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. When your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Are we supposed to take that literally? <laughs> no, otherwise we'd look like a, a pirate convention up here with a bunch of eye patches and hooks for hands. But <laughs> the point is, look, sometimes in life, God tells you to remove something and there's a cost. There's a drastic step. There's a big change that needs to happen. And so often that causes us to push it off, procrastinate. Sometimes we want to save face. I don't want to get a flip phone. What do people think if I had a flip phone? Nate makes fun of flip phones here when he does announcements, right? Like, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Jesus said it's better to go to heaven with one eye than to hell with two. And Pharaoh, he desperately wanted to save face. He's ruling this country. He doesn't want to look like he doesn't have control. So what's the result? Pharaoh says, I can, I can tolerate another 24 hours of these frogs. It's not going to be pleasant, right, but I can tolerate it. It's kind of void of all joy, but I can tolerate it. We make the same decision. We procrastinate with the things that God is prompting us to do, where we settle for less than. We let the enemy rob us of our joy and our progress, and we get robbed of walking in a close relationship with God. There's reasons we procrastinate, sure, but there's also risks. I want to look at just a couple that, again, we see with Pharaoh and then tie this up and put a bow on it so we can all apply something tonight. But the first, these risks, we see it with Pharaoh. You can make matters worse when you procrastinate. Some things just don't get better with time. Being passive often isn't productive. Pharaoh, he, he, again, chooses to wait it out, and one reason mentioned is he wanted to save face. And if you read the passage, another way he tries to save face is he asks his magicians, like, can you duplicate this? So what do his magicians do? They make more frogs. Like, what did Pharaoh say after this? Like, uh, thank you, I guess. Like, was his intention that they would actually get rid of the frogs? But they're like, yeah, we can make more watch. It's funny that after the frogs and they were able to duplicate the snakes, the flies and the gnats come and like, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. Maybe it was just self-preservation, right? Maybe they just didn't want more. Because you can make things worse. How often do we know that what God's asking us to do, it's going to be hard. There's going to be a cost. We might not save face. It might be the hard way. So we often turn to, okay, what's the plan B that the world can offer me that might help as well? But so often it hurts more than it helps. We can get suggestions from inexhaustible sources on the Internet almost instantaneously. Our day and age makes it so easy to get suggestions and information, but actual wisdom, positive life change, it's elusive. That's why you go to the Barnes and Noble, there's about a million self-help books. We're still trying to figure this out, right? But God, his word guides us in these changes. But the second risk of procrastination is your heart only gets harder. Hebrews quotes the prophet Isaiah when it says, today, today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Today, there's an incentive in dealing with things sooner rather than later. And one reason is this this principle called habituation. 
where the more we experience something, the less likely we are to react. So I've told you guys again and again, my, my second office is, is the Chesapeake Square Starbucks. And uh, I, I know a lot of the people there. I invite them out to church. I know the baristas. They, they have my drink ready before I even get to the counter. And I, I'll be sitting at this table, right, working. And sometimes, look, God bless you if you wear perfume or cologne. But sometimes people walk in, it, it, it smells like they take a bath in it. And as soon as they enter the doorway, it's like you inhale, and it's almost like you can't breathe. It's claustrophobic. It's everywhere. It's, it feels like it's in my lungs. I can taste it. It's perfume. It's everywhere. And I'm like, I got to get outside. I got to run. But if you get distracted after about 30 seconds, I don't even smell it anymore. Because your body gets used to it. And if it's not a threat, it just kind of pushes it to the background. It's called habituation. What does that mean spiritually? Spiritually, habituation means that every day we can notice the effects of our sin less and less. It can mean that we notice the voice of conviction less and less. See, Pharaoh got used to the frogs to the point where he's like, I could take one more night. Take another night with the frogs. He got so used to the plagues and his, his life being disrupted regularly that he refused to let the Israelites go through ten of them. His heart got so hard that eventually it took the death of his own son for him to give in and budge. You know, not to be morbid, not to be a Debbie Downer, but death doesn't get any further away. More specifically, the return of Christ, it's only getting closer. It's the third risk. Again, Christ is only getting closer. His return, specifically. Eternity often feels like it's an eternity away. But it's not. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is Psalm 90, verse 10, where it says, Teach me to number my days that I may walk in wisdom. There's a wisdom you find when you realize we're not here forever. When you number your days and realize I've got a clock that's ticking that I can serve God, pursue God, and walk in his purposes. But once it's up, it's up. Same deal with Christ returning. We don't get to beg for more time. Like Ben Franklin once says, you may delay, but time will not. You may delay, but, but Christ will not. It's like we're, we're, if you watch sports, soccer, football, basketball, there's clocks and they're ticking. Our lives are the same way. But for Pharaoh, Pharaoh was a god to his people. He, he, he had a swagger about him. He, he probably felt invincible. It's, I think it's in Exodus 5 where he says to Moses, like, who is this god that I should listen to him? Who is this God? Why should I listen to him? Do you know who I am? I'm Pharaoh. This man thought he was invincible. But the Bible reminds us and causes us to remember, like Psalm 90, again and again, that life is short. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. It says, look here, you who say today or tomorrow, we're going to go to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while. Then it's gone. And then he goes on in verse 17 to drop this bomb where he says, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Verse 17 sounds a lot like procrastination. But it's not just about stopping the sins we commit. We begin to see it's, it's also sins of omission. What's the sin of omission? Those are the things that we're supposed to do, God's calling us to do, but we, we procrastinate. This verse says, in some cases, that's sinful. But think about those things that we so often push off, that I push off. Those people he's calling me to reach. Those, those people that he's calling me to share the gospel with. Those conversations we're called to have. Those seeds that we're called to sow, whether it's relationally like that. Maybe it's financially. Maybe it's prayerfully. There's roles that we're called to play. We're not just called in this life to sit back on our hands and wait for Jesus to come back. There's a clock that's ticking. There's purpose and calling for each one of us. But how often do we say, ah, maybe tomorrow. 
I don't really feel like it today, or I got so much going on, or I'm an introvert, or I don't know what I would say. There are things that God calls us to. Ideally, as we mature as believers and we become more and more like Christ and we progress in our sanctification, there will be a time in life where you're not so much stressing the sins of commission because you're growing in the fruits of the Spirit. You're becoming more like Christ, but you're, you're focusing more on these, these omissions, these things that God is calling you to, to heed and respond to. May we be faithful in them. Because, again, God didn't call us to survive the world until he comes back. He's called us to go into the world, work the harvest, be a light, reach people, build his kingdom, be his hands and feet. And one of the worst ways that we procrastinate is we keep thoughts of eternity at arm's length as far as possible. Like it's some distant tomorrow and God doesn't want to invade our today. This moment, this conversation, this interaction. But, man, our generation, no generation has ever had the opportunity we have to welcome distraction into almost every moment, to be pulled in multiple directions. All I got to do is, luckily, I don't even know where my phone is. <laughs> but we need more of those moments because it's so easy to just pull out our phone and, and, and embrace distraction. And I would say that we embrace distraction. We stay busy because it's in silence, it's in solitude, or we're just quiet for a little bit and, Stop thinking about all those things. You start hearing your heartbeat. You remember, yeah, there is mortality, right? I, I am, but made of dust. And we begin to think, yeah, heaven is closer than we think. But again, we're so prone to temporal discounting, this human tendency to over or undervalue an event or a reward or a test based on its proximity. And if it's further away, then we discount its value. But have we considered how close God really wants to be or how close he really is. And we consider that, again, God wants to invade our every moment. Do we consider the fact that the Holy Spirit, this member of the Trinity, this, this, this deposit of heaven, it lives, he lives in us. Have we considered that Christ is coming back? I don't know if you saw reported in the news, I think it was April 18th was the last time some fool predicted that Jesus was going to come back. Clearly he didn't, right? <laughs> But April 18th, that was in the news. Jesus is coming back April 18th, according to whoever it was. And I'm not here to speculate. The purpose of biblical prophecies and so that we become apocalypse and revelation nerds. It's so that we live alert to what God is prompting us to do, living holy lives, seeking to do those things and not putting it off and procrastinating. Nobody knows when Christ will come back. But what I do know is, is the period we live in now, it's a lot like stoppage time in soccer. Outside of Wayne and maybe a couple other people that play soccer, maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. But in soccer, there's something that's called stoppage time. Because in sports, when you have a lead, you'll see it in basketball. In football, they take a knee, right? In soccer, where you got a lead, you know there's time on the clock. You'll just try to kill time. That's why sometimes when people sub out in soccer, they'll take the long route. You see them get grazed in the shoulder by a butterfly. They flop, and they got to get carried off, right? They're just trying to kill time because they know the clock is ticking, right? And they want to get to the end of the game because they're winning, Sports psychologists have looked at the behavior of players where they've seen. When you're up, you're like twice as likely to behave in this way. So to prevent a team from milking the clock and taking advantage of a lead in soccer, the referee adds time. There's 90 minutes of play, but he adds what's called stoppage time to make up for the dragging along of substitutions or injuries. And he adds that to the 90 minutes. And up until recently, about 20 years ago, they wouldn't tell anybody how much time they added. There was just stoppage time. It would just keep going. Imagine the urgency of the players, especially if you're losing, not knowing how much time is on the clock. You just know it's going to run out. We should be living with similar 
urgency because, again, we don't know. Jesus says in Matthew 24, he didn't know. Just God in heaven knows when the end will be. But we aren't called in our quote-unquote stoppage time to play the victim, flop around, suffer from frogs, right? And we know that at the end of days, you read Revelation, we win, right? That's the bottom line. You get to the end of the Bible, we win. But that doesn't mean we're called to, to, to again, flop around, kill time, just wait to get there. God wants us to play the game, to be engaged, to focus on the goal, to live alert. What does that mean for his church? Reaching people, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, practicing compassion, advancing the kingdom. Hebrews 3 talks about encourage one another. When? While it's still called today. Not tomorrow, not pushing it off, not procrastinating. So if I could have the worship team come up, we're going to go into a time of worship. But I'd ask you tonight, what are your frogs? And I'm not here to prophesy from the pulpit for each one of you. This is what you need to take off. This is what you need to remove from your life. Or this is the habit you need to start. Because I, I believe, look, if, if you live with self-awareness or you live within a community, a spouse, right, who can help you with those blind spots. And if you live with the Holy Spirit who guides us in truth, you can probably think of two or three frogs right now. Things where God is asking you, you need to remove this. Or you need to start doing this. Stop pushing this off. Stop saying tomorrow to something that he wants you to do now, while it's still called today. So I don't know what that is for you, but I believe as we go back into worship, that God will make those things abundantly clear. Come on, let's offer those things to God. Let's ask him, God, what, what do you will from us? Because yes, your grace covers us, but God, your grace calls us forward to follow you. We're not called to sit on our hands and wait for the clock to run out. You call us on a journey. Looking more like you every day. God, and we know nobody in here should at least know that we're there yet. There's always something where God is doing a work. He's rearranging. He's shifting perspectives. He's shifting paradigms. He's saying, take this off. It's hindering you. Remove this. It's entangled you. They're saying, do, do this while it's still today. Don't put it off until tomorrow. Don't say, ah, I'll spend 24 more hours with these frogs. If we could stand, we're going to go back into worship. But God, I pray that here tonight, in those areas of our life where we've been saying, I'll get to it tomorrow. God, teach us to number our days so that we can walk in wisdom. Help us to remember that our life is but a vapor or the morning mist, as James says, God. And help us to feel that sense of urgency like we're living in stoppage time. God, we don't know when our last day will be. We just know that we're called. We've been given a purpose. We've been saved by grace through faith, yes, but it's so that we can do the work that you prepared in advance for us to do. God, I don't want to get to the end of my days and you say, well, welcome to heaven, but I, there was so much work that you put off and put off and put off and never got to. God, I want to, I want to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us to serve you with our lives. Help us to do today what you've called us to do today and not put those things off until tomorrow. And God, I pray that as you, through the Holy Spirit, put your finger on things, or maybe we're well aware of them now, Lord God, help us to offer them up to you in this place. But God, we sing, we worship, we praise you. In this place, we sing, Lord.